to finish up this kind of theme that we picked up after in May on the Holy Spirit. Uh, I hadn't finished, and I wanted to kind of try to finish this out. Remember, we celebrated Pentecost on May the 15th and uh, <clears throat> celebrated uh, that as a... Uh, and I'm going to suggest uh, the great uh, goal of all of God's activity. If I'm reading the New Testament correctly or the Bible correctly, the goal of all of God's activity is the bringing of the Spirit. That, that's His goal. The, the cross is certainly involved in that as part of the means but when Jesus said to his disciples, you wait, this isn't over, this isn't finished. You go to Jerusalem and you wait until the promise of the Father comes that you've heard from me as I've spoken to you before. Uh, in my judgment, that suggests that that is the goal. That is the ultimate goal of the work and the ministry of God through Jesus Christ. I, it may sound a little radical. I said this a, a couple weeks ago, I believe this too. And I think that's true because as I read the New Testament and see it, I think I can make the case that, that Jesus never fundamentally changed the disciples. Jesus never did. Uh, they were still competitive. They were still arguing. They were still involved in all kinds of things. And only after the coming of the Holy Spirit do we find them fundamentally changed from cowards to courageous. You see in the book of Acts, these men are now speaking to the very people they ran from and said, you killed him. They didn't say, you know, this was a bad situation. They literally say, if you read there in Acts, they said, you killed the prince of life. And so how do you account for that courage after that great cowardice? And so I'm going to suggest to you, again, as I've said several times, that the coming of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit, is in fact the goal of all of God's activity. Now, so that's why we always have a celebration uh, here on Pentecost. Uh, Marty preached on the Holy Spirit on Pentecost this year. And uh, that's uh, what we're trying to, at least, if you will, to emphasize what we think the Scriptures teach. You can think about that a while if you want to. Now, what I'd like to talk about today, and you can turn to Romans chapter 8. Uh, we're going to be looking here for a few minutes in this particular passage of expectation, of expectations as it comes to Spirit. Now, you know, uh, expectations are funny things. Uh, I've often wondered, how come my hamburger on the right doesn't look like the one I saw on TV? <laughs> Is that, you ever think of that? I mean, I ponder these deep things. I'm, I'm, I'm pondering deep, deep things. Yeah. I always say to Becky, I say, man, that looks so good, but that's what it looks like when I pick it up, you know? Expectations, you know, advertising and all of this kind of stuff. What they're trying to do is, is uh, uh, think, make you expect this is going to be great. This is going to be wonderful. And it's okay if you're in advertising, that's fine. Uh, but I often say that uh, often our expectations of what we think we're going to have are less than what we, uh, or the reality is less than the expectation, isn't it? Often. Uh, I think of in athletics, uh, this often uh, is the same, you know. Uh, I think in politics, I, I was thinking, I said to Becky the other day, I said, isn't it going to be great after this election that these politicians are going to fix everything? <laughs> I mean, that's what they said. Isn't that right? You know, the ex I mean, long on promises, long on expectation, and short on, if you will, delivering. Uh, expectations, we all have them. Uh, we all deal with them. Uh, whenever we uh, are going on a vacation or some of you are getting ready to plan that, you've got all these great expectations about what it will be and how it will be like. And heard a guy say one time, you know, they were in Colorado and he said, you know, they, they um, had a, a mosquito in the room. And so he says, well, how can that little mosquito bother you? He said, apparently you've never spent the night with one in a sleeping bag. <laughs> That's a little thing, but you get one of those guys in a sleeping bag with you and it's a whole different thing, Right. So expectations sometimes have a good deal to do with what we deal. And so today, what I want to do is, what can you expect from life in the Holy Spirit? What can you expect? What can you expect? And again, I want to be careful to not, if you will, overpromise and underdeliver. So I want to look at a passage here in Romans, a pretty familiar one, and try to work through this with this idea of what can you expect. I've made some, you know, I've made some big statements that uh, the Holy Spirit's coming is the goal of all of God's activity. I've said that Jesus never uh, fundamentally changed the disciples until the coming of the Holy Spirit. That Jesus must have thought it so important that he wouldn't even let him go. He just said, you've got to wait now until the coming of the Spirit. Uh, so what is it that we can expect, if you will? So we're going to start reading here uh, in just a moment uh, about here on Romans 8.1. 
It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, watch. We're going to come back to it, but we're going to go slow here. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So that the requirement, some translators say the just requirement or the full requirement, that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, I want to I look at this here and start here because I, we're going to try to work this. Because what I want to say is what can you expect from life in the Spirit is a new standing. A new standing. Notice when it says here, there is there now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And uh, when, you, when you read, uh, especially the epistles, uh, the epistles will use uh, prepositions and terms um, uh, to signal. For instance, look at verse 2, for. Uh, the word for uh, is, a, is a preposition here, or conjunction rather, uh, the, the idea uh, of suggesting here's the evidence or the reason. Uh, when you see the word for, uh, a, a reason or a purpose or an explanation is about to follow. But for instance, um, it, it goes like this. Jesus loves me, this I know. That, that's what I know. For, now here comes the evidence. Here comes the basis of that. Here comes the support of that. How's it go? For what? Yeah, so how do I know that Jesus loves me? The Bible tells me. The word for, that, that conjunction there, or that, that word there suggests, here is now the reason for that. There is no condemnation for those now, why is that, Paul? For, notice what he says, the law of the spirit of life and Christ Jesus has set you free from the law. So there's a new law in town, if you will. Instead of Torah or the law as we understand it, Paul is saying there's a new law. What is it? It's the law of the spirit of life. Now, I want to make a couple of observations here, and just if you'll note this in this passage, uh, you, you don't have to do this. I mean, you're like my students. You don't have to, but, uh, you know, it'd be good if we have a test. Um, no. In verse 2, I'd like for you, if you just look, I want you to circle the word life. Okay? Just, uh, you just this, is, this, is, this is threaded through here. Verse 6, at the end of the verse, life. At verse 10 at the end or toward the end, is alive. And in, literally in, in Greek, it's live or live. Verse 11, toward the end of it, life. Verse 12, I'm sorry, verse 13, live. Those terms, uh, live, live, alive, different translations have them, suggest that this new standing, that this new matter that Paul is referring to, that it is principally understood as a matter of life. A, a matter of life. That, that there is this understanding here that because of the Spirit now, we experience life. We're going to come back to that in more detail uh, because I want to I I work on this here a little bit to suggest that, that what Paul is trying to do is saying there's a new law in town, the law of the Spirit, it's replaced the old law, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. Now, I told Becky I was going to do something that, uh, today that I hope we'll get out of it, but I want to, I want to look at look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 8 again. Therefore. Now, that word, therefore, suggests that there's some connection with what previously occurred. This, again, I think is what Paul's trying to do. Say, so here's what you can expect in life in the spirit. Therefore, there is now... Look at that, that word there, that conjunct. Now, suggesting time. There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ. Why is that there? Let, let me suggest to you that if you'll go back to Romans 7 for a minute, we're going to look at that. Romans 7 is, in my judgment, one of the most uh, difficult and one of the most uh, misunderstood uh, uh, chapters in the Bible. Uh, I, I, I might even say it this way. I... 
I'm about 62 years old now and uh, just, just got a little older, that I have rarely, if ever, heard anybody speak about this change out, if you will, the law of the spirit of life from the law of sin and death, this exchange that, that Paul's referring to. What's happening is that in Romans 7, Paul has been discussing the matter, if you will, of sin and the law. Let me, let me say it to you this way. Romans 7 is not about the Christian life, okay? I know that that may be a new idea, but I want to try to show you that Romans 7 is not about the Christian life. Romans 7 is about the inability of the law to deal with sin. Romans 7 is about the inability of the law to deal with sin. This is, again, uh, one of the reasons why the Jews wanted to kill Paul. Uh, because what did they think about the law? It was everything, wasn't it? That the law was the gift that God had given to them. In fact, if you study Romans 7 in its historical context, what you discover is this. Jews do not believe in a sinful nature. Now, if you knew that or not, there is no teaching in rabbinical theology that teaches that people have sinful natures. They're not. They just don't. There's, there's nothing about it. Uh, Jewish scholars taught that people were born, if you will, not neutral, but in this way. They had what they call an ahav yetzer. Yetzer is the word for impulse, desire, kind of drive. The ahav yetzer, which is an evil impulse. And then they have the tov yetzer, which is the good impulse. And that's the way human beings are born. That's the way they come into the world. These are equally powerful. Neither one of them is more powerful than the other. What's fascinating is, and this is why Romans 7 becomes so important as we get to 8 about life in the Spirit, is that rabbis taught that what God did for the Jews was this. In order to support and strengthen the Ahav Yetzirah, the good one, he gave him something. You want to take a wild guess? The law. That broke the balance of power in the Jewish mind. That broke the stranglehold of sin on human beings. And so if you had the law, you then had power over the, to uh, the Ahav Yetzer, which is the bad one. I, I think I said that. The tov yetzer is the good one. Tov. So the law came to support and strengthen the tov yetzer to be able to be strengthened against the power of sin. Now, if you know that as a historical background, then when you begin to read Romans 7, it begins to make more sense. Look here, if you will, just for a second on Romans 7. We're going to work our way forward. Because I'm talking about, what the, let me say, what the law brings, what Paul would say and Scripture teaches, is the law brings condemnation. What the law brings is damnation. What the law brings is God's judgment against sin. It doesn't bring salvation. Or look, look how it begins at verse 7-1. Or do you not know, brethren, I'm speaking to those who know the law. See, see, the question under consideration in 7 is not the Christian life. It's what? The law. It's not the Christian life. It's the law. I'm, I'm speaking to those, he said, who know the law. Watch this. That the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. So then, if while her husband is living and she is joined to another, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law so that she's not an adulteress, though she's joined to another man. Watch this now. Therefore, my brethren, you were made to die to what? The law. I just used an analogy that the law only has jurisdiction over a woman as long as her husband is alive. And once he dies, she's free. You, my brethren, were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another. Who's that? It's the youth camp answer. You can go ahead and say it, you know. 
you know, youth camp, they said, what is it that has a big bushy tail, runs, eats nuts, and runs up in a tree? And a little boy said, well, it sounds like a squirrel, but this is youth camp, so I'm going to say Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can go ahead and say Jesus on this one. Yeah, it's safe. Right. Didn't we all remember that? <laughs> every answer, every answer. Jesus, Jesus. Yeah. So, so that you... That's a ridiculous illustration for this point is that you were joined to another to him. Look here, verse five, for while we were in the flesh, were, were, that tense, while we were in the flesh, what happened? The sinful passions were aroused by the law. Look at that. You know, this is the great teaching that Paul brings that, again, the reason the rabbis wanted to kill him. He is saying exactly opposite of what the rabbis have taught. The rabbis have taught that the Tov Yetzer will be strengthened and empowered against this battle with sin because of the law. He's saying it's just the opposite. What does the law do? It arouses. Listen, uh, I think it was G.K. Chesterton that said the only theological uh, doctrine that is phenomenologic, observable, observable. The only doc we can't observe the cross. We weren't there. We the only doctrine that is observable is uh, human depravity in a three-year-old. <laughs> Tell them to not do something, and then watch. <laughs> what happens? Man, I want to do that. <laughs> right? What does the law do? It arouses it. See, don't do that. Well, I'll show you. In just a minute here, right? So it no, So when we were in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by the law. But now, look at verse 6, you have been released from the law, having died to that which you were bound, so that we serve in the newness of the Spirit, not the letters of the law. Now let me show you how this is working out. Again, the thing under consideration is not the Christian life. The thing under consideration is the inability of the law to deal with sin. That's what's under consideration. He said, I'm right into the... So look at the question here in seven. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Again, what's, what are we discussing here? The law. Not the Christian life. Is the, well, hey, Paul, if that was what was going on before, if, if, if the law aroused sin, well, is, is the law then sin? It's a logical, logical question, isn't it? And his answer is what? Certainly not. It's interesting, in King James, it would be what? God forbid. Yeah. It's actually Greek, uh, which means this, it cannot come into existence. That's what it literally means. The law is sin. No, cannot, cannot come into existence. So the question there, and he works that through. Now, look down at verse 13. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? What's good? What's he talking about? What's the good? The law. Okay, if law isn't sin and he works as you can read through that, he, he answered, no, it's not. The, the function of the law, Paul says, is to reveal sin and show you it's there, not to heal it, not to fix it. It's like an x-ray. Years ago, I was playing a softball game in a, in a, I'm a little embarrassed. I tagged a girl in our family as hard as I could. No, <laughs> broke my hand. I did. She's a tough girl. It was Becky's sister. <laughs> Sliding cleats. No, she wasn't. <laughs> um, but I just kind of, and I broke a little uh, bone in my hand. And I, you know, I thought, well, I don't like doctors. They could use a needle, so I'll just wait. Well, it you know, swelled up like a cantaloupe. And I said to Becky, it's not bad. <laughs> it's okay. Who uses this finger anyway? Right? It's okay. Uh, I can scribble. Uh, couldn't type. Anyway, I found it with a doctor, and, and, and he said, well, we better x-ray it. So we put it under the little deal. I thought, okay, no needles in an x-ray. I'm looking around, you know, watching. And uh, sneak up on me. And uh, he said, yep, there it is. And it was what he called a boxer fracture. And then I felt lots better about having a girl break my hand. Okay. You know what? When that x-ray did that hand, it didn't heal anything. It didn't fix anything. What did it do? Exposed it. Revealed it. That's all the law does. The law isn't going to help you. 
The, the law isn't going to fix it. The law isn't going to heal. The law isn't going to empower you to suddenly now not do it. All it does is reveals it. This is where the Jews have gotten so far off. This is why Paul is trying to pull them forward. There's a new law in town. And so he says this. Now, now look at verse. So therefore did that which is good cause death in me. No. It was sin. It was sin. And if you, if you follow this, I'm not going to say, read this uh, 13 uh, to 25. There is this understanding that sin is this power, this presence that is so powerful that the law cannot reel it in. <laughs> when he says stuff like this, you know, uh, it was sin taking opportunity through the law and killed me. Wow. So the law is impotent. The law has no power. Now this is where we get in trouble. So for, for, for we know that the law is spiritual. But I am of the flesh. Now again, this is where I, I tell my students, you know, uh, Paul makes some statements in 6 and early 7, or early 7, that if we are not careful when we get to 7, he will either be simply contradicting himself or schizophrenic. One of the two. You know, when he says in 6, 15, sin shall no longer have mastery over you for you're not under the law. You, you, you died, he says over here. You're no longer in the flesh. And then he says, wait a minute. I know I'm in the flesh. I am of the flesh. A couple of words, a couple of ideas here. Flesh has three different meanings. I'm going to burn through it real quick. Three different, it's a lot of, you know, I'm out of school, so I decided I would teach today a little theology. <laughs> Now, this is important to get to 8. In fact, I want to tell you this. You cannot understand Romans 7 if you don't read 6, 7, and 8. It's a unit. You cannot understand it. So, flesh can mean physical body or human being. Jesus, it says in Romans 1, 4, was a descendant of David according to the flesh. He had a real body, right? So, it can just mean that. That's all. Or it can be Life that is limited, where Jesus said flesh and blood can't enter the kingdom of heaven. It's limitation. It's, it's unable uh, to go beyond human or physical properties and powers. And the third way that it's used is the most uh, important probably in this, is it is life lived in human power and ability in opposition to God. You know, you know, you know what Paul calls that? Life in Adam. That's what he calls it. Adam power, Adam strength, Adam intelligence, Adam wisdom, Adam strength. And this is where Paul is saying, you're no longer in the flesh. Of course you have a body. Of course you're limited. You're going to be in one place at one time. What he's saying, you no longer are living life based on human power and ability and effort only. That's not, that's not the Christian life. It's not try harder. It's not get more disciplined. It's not work at it. So, so he's saying, you know, the law is spiritual, but I'm of the fight. Now, this is where people get confused. Let me, let me just suggest this. Paul is in verses 13 to the end there, attempting to show again the inability of the law to deal with sin in any measure because of the power that sin has. And I'm going to suggest something here, and you, may, you don't have to agree with it, but I'm going to suggest something here. Because of what Paul has said before, I am hoping he's not contradicting himself or becoming schizophrenic. Now when it says, now the good that I want to do I can and the evil I don't want to do I end up doing, that sounds like to me sin having mastery over you, doesn't it? Does that sound like it? If you say I can't do what I want to do and the good, what I don't want to do I end up doing, does that sound like you're mastered by sin? He said in 6.15 you're not. He said in 7.4 you're not under in the flesh. So... What do we make of this? Let me suggest to you something in Greek that's going on. <clears throat> Notice, if you will, at verse 14, Paul flips into what we call the present tense. In the, it was in the past tense, now he's in the present tense. For what I am doing, I don't understand. Okay? So there it is, it's present tense. So all present tense means it's going on when? Be careful. 
uh, that's possible. Possible. But Greek and English, and I, maybe French and Spanish and who knows, have, and you, you'll find it in your Bible, in the Gospels, a thing called the historic present. Read in the Gospels when it says, Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee. That's what tense. Is he doing that right now? <laughs> Go look at it. It's in your apparatus or in the front of your Bible. It should be in italics or it may have a little asterisk by it. It's called the historic present. It's used all through the New Testament. And the use of the historic present is where an author is attempting to take a, 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 an event or experience in the past, bring it to the future, bring it to the present to intensify it. You know? Becky and I were in Colorado Springs the other day. And uh, we decided to take a hike. She decided. I, lo- I went. <laughs> the problem was it was cool and the wind was blowing like crazy. And so that wind got up and all of a sudden I, Becky is behind. I'm walking and she's walking behind me like NASCAR, you know. <clears throat> right? She's drafting. And I'm, and I'm walking. See, what am I doing? I'm, I'm telling you this story that was in the past. What? Now, I'm walking along and she's right behind me. She's historic present. There is evidence that this is what Paul's doing. If you're going to say it's just the simple present, then my suggestion would be to say to you is you're going to have to reconcile some of these crazy statements he made in 6 and 7 4. He's an absolute contradiction of himself. He's absolutely contradicted himself. And that's not good. <laughs> right? So is there a reason? So here it is. And, and let me suggest to you why he's doing that. Paul is trying to bring this thing down to say the law is incompetent. It is absolutely unable to deal with sin. He's going to say, and hey, the only answer is life in the spirit. This new standing, this new situation. Look what he does. Underline this in verse 7, 15. What I'm doing, I don't understand. Underline the word understand. Or what, I'm not sure what ESV... Uh, or you may say, I don't know what I'm doing. What does it say there in 15? Huh? huh? I have you have the real Bible over here, the New American Standard. So. <laughs> How does ESV say? Does it, I, I don't know. Huh? Okay, good. Great. Okay. Understand. Okay. Verse 16. But if I do the very thing I do not want... Underline the word want... Or if there's some term like that. Wish. Yeah, same idea. Verse 18. Is it say the willing is present? The want to, the willing. I don't know, I'm willing. See, want, wish, willing, that's all the same. Then verse 22. Joyfully. Joyfully. I joyfully concur with the law in my inner man. But I find something else at work. Let me suggest to you what's going on here. Paul is drawing this down to a final kind of conclusion, using the historic present to intensify it. And he is operating now to say every feature of human personality is is completely unable to deal with sin. What are the features of personality here? Understand. Mind. The mind and the law is no match to sin. Look at here. The want, the willing, the will, the will. That, you know, that's what we say makes us human. We can choose. We have a will. You could say to me, you know, if you don't do this, you know, if you don't hit Becky in the head, I'll, I'll hit you in the head. Well, hit me in the head. I don't have to do that. I have a will. The will, I want to do what's good. I will to do it, but I can't. That's the mind. That's the will. You probably figured this out by by 22. What's that? The emotions. Joyfully. I joyfully concur. I think Paul's smart enough to know, and we know from psychology, that human beings are made up of mind, emotion, and will. He's a smart guy. What's he saying? Everything you bring as a human being, 
And everything I bring as a human being, the mind, the emotion, and the will with the law is no match for sin. I'll say it to you again. This chapter is that there has to be this radical, radical separation from a follower of Jesus, from the law, if you're going to deal with sin. It's got to be. You know, I, I don't know if I ever noticed this until years ago, but look over here, just hold your hand there, but go to, go to 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> I, I don't know if I noticed this until a few years ago as I was reading through. In 1 Corinthians 15, I, you know, as a pastor, I've done several graveside services and, and uh, you've probably been uh, to a few in your life. And this is a common verse uh, that is uh, spoken at. Uh, at a funeral when it says in verse 55, 1 Corinthians 15, 15, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is what? Did you ever notice that? What's the power of sin? The law. There it is. See, that's what Paul said in 7, that what did the law do? It aroused sin. Woke it up. It aroused it. What does sin do? It empowers law. What does law do? It empowers sin. It's the power of sin because it appeals to Adam energy. It appeals to Adam power. It appeals to human effort. It appeals to human ability instead of what? Spirit. Now, now here's the clincher for me. Look, look over here now. We'll go back to Romans 8. Go to, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Here's why he can say that. Look, verse 3. For what the law could not do. Look at that right there. Verse 3. This is why you have to read 6, 7, 8 together. The reason the law of sin and death is over and the law of spirit of life is here is because the law could not do what? Deal with sin. What the law could not do is it cannot, it never can, it never will. It does not have the capacity to deal with sin. So students always ask me this question when we kind of work through this. We take a little more time and do a little more work. So Cliff, or, or I, said, I said this to make it more. What students will say to me is when they read Romans 6 and they read Romans 8, they understand that's, you know, Paul's kind of bookends here, if you will, about the Christian life. But they say to me this, and, and I, I think this would have been my experience as well, is this. But I identify my Christian life in seven. And they say to me, why is it that I identify more with seven than to do six and eight? And, my, and it's not a shorthanded answer, but it's, my answer is this. It's because we have not spent enough time understanding the life of the Spirit. We've turned this thing into try harder, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And we failed to say, there's a new law. It's life in the Spirit. Now, so, they ask, well, so who is this? Is this a Christian? Is this a before a Christian or after a Christian? And here's my answer. Yes. See you tomorrow. <laughs> in fact, I went to a funeral this week and I saw a guy named his, his name is uh, Shannon uh, Smith. He's from Missouri. Shannon was always the guy that just hated me for a profession. What's the answer? And I said, well, it all depends. You know? I, saw, I saw him yesterday after about 10 years. I said, you still got to have all the answers? <laughs> listen now, carefully. Not that you're not. I can't stand what Charles Stanley says. That. Now listen, now listen, now listen. I'm saying, I'm already. Anyway. Little, little problem I got, among many others. <laughs> if you try to deal with sin as a Christian, based on law, you're going to be in seven. 
This is not Christian, pre-Christian, after Christian. This is what? That the law is incapable of dealing with sin. Quit. You're, you're, we're asking the wrong question. The question is, can law ever adequately deal with sin? And the answer is no. So what happens is we don't talk enough about the Spirit, and so we load people down with big Bibles and nothing wrong with that, and all kinds of things to do, and all kinds of disciplines, and all kinds of matters. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but I'm saying it is appealing to me as Adam, i got to do this. And if I'll just pray enough and do enough and act enough and believe enough and respond enough, I can get this done instead of saying, wait a minute, there's a new law in town. Again, it says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. This is why they wanted to kill him. Not just take his credentials away from him. Or not let him preach at the local synagogue. He said the law is the law of sin and death because it appeals to human power and ability. It appeals to Adam. Try harder. Work at it. Instead of laying your life before God in the power of the Spirit and say, I open my life to you. Live through and in me and I depend on you. I'll show you another thing. I didn't think about this till just then. That happens often. <clears throat> Look back at verse uh, chapter 6. Where is that? Uh, in chapter 6, verse 5, where Paul says, For we became united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall become likeness of his resurrection, knowing that our old self was crucified with him. Is that how it reads in your Bible? Our old self. You know, what, you know what you do and I, what I've done all my life? You, you've personalized that. So you think, well, you know, I'm still cussing. I don't, I don't suggest you do that, but you know. I thought the old self died. Or, you know, I've still got this. See, this is where we, we're not reading it. It's interesting. In my Jew, you know, all these things have to be read in context. Here's what it says. Knowing this... That our old man died. It's singular. It's anthropos in the Greek. Our old man died. If you're reading in context, who was the old man in chapter 5? Life in Adam. This is not some psychologizing of the text that you died or somehow this idea. This is that life in Adam died. It's no longer going to work. The old man, you, know what? you can live in him if you want to, and you'll experience death. You can live in Adam's power, intellect, strength, understanding, wisdom, all those kind of things. He's still available, but he's dead. I've asked you this before, and I'm almost embarrassed. I've heard about it. Weekend at Bernie's? <laughs> I actually asked Warner Brothers for the right to use that clip in a class, and they've never responded to me. So, and I'm not going to say what I'm going to do on tape. <laughs> I'm being recorded. <laughs> you know, here's the story of some guys that get this great thing at the ocean or lake, and it's a cabin, and a guy named Bernie, and he dies on it. So what they have to do to stay that weekend and keep in the house is to keep dressing Bernie up and acting like he's alive. So they raise his hand in the car when they go by. Hey, Bernie! And they, remember that? Y'all are a bunch of sinners. Y'all seen that movie. We all repent of that later. But I mean, it's, it's, it's bizarre because, you know, they're, they're taking him around and dressing him up and put him under that big umbrella. I remember when the, you know, the, everybody, hello. You know, when I saw that, I thought, it's funny and sad to the nth degree when I thought that has been the way that Cliff Sanders has lived the Christian life. He's tried to make Cliff look alive when Cliff is dead. Cliff's power is dead. Cliff's ability is dead. If all we got working here is Cliff, if all we have is his strength and ability, whatever it is, well, we're in bad shape. 
But many of us have tried to dress up a dead body and make it look like it's alive. Or we've tried to dress up this dead power and make it look like it's real. Instead of saying, you know what? This thing's dead. There's a new life available because God has done in Christ what the law could not do. So what I hope you get released from today is this. That there's a new law in town. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the life of the Spirit of Christ Jesus has set you free. Now, you know what? When I teach on this, I, I wish I had four steps to this or two steps or three steps or not, whatever, you know. Listen, this is life in daily dependence on another. This is life in daily dependence on another. There's no achievement here. There's no steps. I can't give you four steps to spiritual maturity. I can't give you nine steps to never dealing with sin again. You know, we, we all want that because we want control. Instead of daily dependence on another. Now, I, I, I just, it, it's fascinating to me how that law finds its way creeping back into our lives. I mean, I mean, you've probably got a few of them yourself. You know, you've got to have your devotions in the morning, right? Or you're going to hell. Don't you? I mean, you know. And, and, and if you pray, you can't pray for less than 12 minutes. I mean, come on. 12 minutes is the standard. One for each of the apostles, you know. I don't know. I, some of this stuff just happens. Right? You know, I said in my Bible study the other day, I'm convinced that life in the Spirit is this. God is more concerned about you than the rules you're trying to keep. That might, that might be a good question. Is God more concerned about me or the rules that I'm supposed to keep? That's law. Is God more concerned about you as a person? Is God more, are, 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 you, are you hung up, or I've been, are you hung up and wound up in all the rules and what I oughts and shoulds? And listen, I know we, we ought to read our Bible and we ought to pray and we ought to go to church and all those kind of things. But when those things become what God is more concerned about than saying, Cliff, I'm concerned about you. You might ask yourself that question. What is God more interested in? You or the rules? You or the plan for spiritual maturity? You know, every summer I, I have some time off. Becky said to me, quit telling people how long you have off. I only have nine weeks and I'm really discouraged. <laughs> I know, I know. Stop it, Cliff. But you know, I have a lot of goals that I want to set about the number of books I want to read and how long I want to pray each day, you know, so I feel good, you know. And, and it, it's just sort of like the Lord's trying to help me kind of de decompress some pressure out of there and just say, Cliff, I'm, I'm concerned about you. Not all the hoops you keep jumping through and all the things you have. I'm concerned about you. You know, that's a shocking thought for me. I'm going to talk to you about this as we work on this because part of this has to do with some of the journey I've been on this past year about life in the Spirit. Is The life in the Spirit is this idea of dependence on another, reliance on daily. That's why God doesn't fix you. Because if He fixed you, you wouldn't have to depend on Him every day. Right? That's what we want, right? Fix me and we'll be done. Right? And I know some of you are saying, well, I wish somebody would fix him. <laughs> we want to be fixed because we don't want to have to live in daily dependence, reliance, and keep just coming to Jesus and letting the Spirit of God guide us and direct us and lead and live in our we, we want to be fixed. I get that. So what I've done and what you may have done, well, we're going to talk some more about this, is we've sort of created this, uh, some call it the false self, the performer, the achiever, 
I'm who I, I I'm what I can do. I, I'm what I can achieve. I'm what I can successfully deal with. I wrote my journal the other day. This was, I don't think I told you this. I've been on vacation, so who knows? I wrote this in my journal the other day. Working through this about life in the spirit, about depending on Jesus. I said, you know what? I've depended on my work and my achievement and my education. Nothing wrong with any of those things, but I've depended on them too much. I've not depended on that God is more concerned about me than the rules. And I wrote in there that I've sort of created this kind of persona or whoever I'm, you know, this false self maybe. I mean, maybe it's the public self. I don't know. I'm not trying to psychoanalyze myself. Aren't you? Really? Okay. Well, <clears throat> there is one guy in there that keeps trying to do that. <laughs> but I wrote this in my journal the other day when I, and it shocked me when I said uh, this kind of depending on the spirit instead of my performance, my actions, whatever. I said, I, I think at times I've created this guy, the performer, the teacher, the whatever I am. It's because I, I had deep doubts that God loved the real cliff. So I let this one that was out here and performed and acted. That shocked me when I wrote it. As it said, I, I had some doubts. If God could love the real cliff. See, that, that's where the law comes in, where I have to perform or I have to do or I have to achieve. And Adam, does, does God love the real you? You know, the one that hasn't achieved, the one that hasn't gotten successful, the one, just the person in there. I'm, I'm kind of digging around in that. You see, there, there's a new life available to us. It's not achievement. It's not performance. It's not gathering. It's relying. Now, boy, that, you say, well, Cliff, how do we do that? Hey, stop the howls, will you? If I could answer that, I, I wouldn't be here. I'd be famous. The only how I have is daily reliance on another. Let that pressure settle down and rely on the Spirit. There's a little application here, maybe. What if you made a conscious decision to believe that you have a new standing with God? No condemnation. Because you're living, relying upon the Spirit. Now, let me say this again. You and I get back into law. You get back into law, I can guarantee you that the experience will be condemnation. Because the law will incite it Activate it and arouse every wrong thing in us. So Paul says what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, there's that idea of Adam. Weak as it was through the flesh, human power, human ability, human effort, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he condemns him. We're going we're gonna to work on this next week. We're not through. But this is why Pentecost is so important. I think my students have told me, and it seems to me to be the case. Too many of us identify with Romans 7. And it's not because we're not serious, and not because we don't love Jesus, and not because we don't want to honor him. It's not, it's not because we're just wanting to go crazy and go wild. It's because we just thought, try harder. Instead of daily reliance, dependence. I tell you how that works out for me. I, it's not, you know, it's no big magical thing. It's, no, it's not even profound. It's just when I get into a situation or a circumstance, I just say, Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to guide me. I don't know what to do here. I'm not sure what to do here. I'm not going to feel some pressure that I got to perform or I got to act or I got to do. Jesus, what would you have me do here?
through the power of the Spirit, what, what would you, if I, don't, if I don't understand or don't know, I'm not going to, don't worry about it. Don't, don't, don't fret yourself about it. But that, that person on the inside that wants to stand up and take control, that's Adam. <laughs> He's the one. I'm not saying don't go to work. I'm not saying make good decisions. I'm simply saying that. Well, you know when Adam starts standing up and said, I'll take it from here. And he usually takes it to the dumpster. <laughs> right? Instead of saying that, Holy Spirit, I'm depending on you. I'm, I'm learning. I'm trusting. I'm learning to walk. I'm learning to respond. But guys, that's the glory of the gospel. Is there's now a new law. Life in the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, who is the teacher, take what we've discussed or looked at today through your word and cause us <clears throat> to become a people who no longer have any confidence in Adam to be a people who no longer have confidence in our ability, but to be a people who have a commitment to do our best to rely on you, to look to you, to go through life listening, following, being guided. Guard us from trying to make laws or steps or details in this matter. Give us the good sense and conviction to begin each day, end each day, in the middle of the day, at two times in the day, who knows how many times, to just keep looking to you, life in the Spirit. We can't do this. We can't understand this. We can't live this out without opening our lives to you. So we do that right now. We don't know how you'll do it, but we rely in dependence on you in Jesus' strong name. Amen.